I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy. It's not a gender. Oh, babe. We're in trouble this week. Yeah. The smackaroonies are smacking. Yeah. Perhaps too hard. This was obviously just a week where we wanted to just watch really good shit. And we watched, you could say, too much good shit. We should just get into it because we're going to have a lot to say about these. You kicked us off with a hell of a mystery movie pick to start off the week on your night before going back to work. Yeah, I usually don't want to watch something new on the night before going back to work. I want to watch something I know I like. So I picked um, an all-time fave that it's quite shocking we've never covered on the show, Parasite. 2019 drama thriller directed by Bong Joon-ho and written by Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won. It stars Song Kang-ho as Kai-tak, Lee Sun-kyun as Donik, Cho Young-jong as Yeon Kyo, Cho Woo-sik as Ki-woo, Park So-dam as Ki-young, Lee Jong-un as Moon-gwang, and Yang Hai-jin as Chung-suk. The synopsis. Greed and class discrimination threaten the newly formed symbiotic relationship between the wealthy Park family and the destitute Kim clan. What did you think of Parasite? I'm not going to bury the lead. I fucking love this movie. It's uh, one of my favorites. It's in my top five. Uh, It's in my top four on Letterboxd. We saw it three times in the theater. And I had to break it down for you because it just kind of felt like a bit of a dream. Well, this is... When we saw Parasite, it was this kind of period of seeing really incredible things in the theater. And we were, I think, starting to get into like Edmonton Film Festival and going and seeing more movies at Metro and making that a priority and seeing movies that weren't necessarily coming to Cineplex Mm -hmm. and keeping a pulse on movies that people were saying were really good that weren't coming to the like mainstream theaters. And we were getting really into that. And then the pandemic happened. So there's this string of movies we saw, another one which we're going to cover in this episode, where we saw in this kind of end of 2019, beginning of 2020 pocket that do feel like a 
Yeah. Because we were going to the theater a whole bunch. It was like our movie theater renaissance. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it was like, just kidding. You can't go to the theater for another year and a half. Yeah. Very, uh, the rug being pulled out from under us kind of feeling. But yeah, we saw this three times. We went and saw it for the first time at Metro and it was just magical because one of the things I'm probably most grateful for in my life is knowing absolutely nothing about this going into it. <laughs> Getting to see Parasite without knowing what it's about whatsoever is such a gift. And I just remember it being such an incredible experience. The second time we saw it, we took our buddy Ashley, who when we love stuff, she's the always top of mind of like, oh, we got to take Ash to this. And then the third time, which you forgot about, is we went and saw it in IMAX, <laughs> which is We also, tend to do that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm considering going to see Barbie in IMAX. I don't think it would change the experience whatsoever, and it's not really built for IMAX, but it's it's bigger and louder. So I'll I'll go. <laughs> But I I love I love that we got to have those three experiences and then subsequently it got released on Criterion and immediately we're like, well, of course, we're going to buy that. And that's the version we watched this week. And this is one of those movies, you know, you watch movies like Jaws and like Scream and I'm just thinking of horror movies right now, but you watch these movies and you think, wow, what would it have been like to see that? when it first came out and to like be a part of something that you recognized in the moment was going to be iconic forever. And I feel like we did get to experience that with parasite. Like, I feel like this is a movie, the world's still around in 50 years mm. where people will be like younger people will watch it and be like, Holy shit. I wish I'd seen that when it came out mm -hmm. and we're going to be able to say we did. <laughs> so it's something really special to watch something and be like, Holy shit, this is so special. And like we got to be a part of it in the moment. I think that's a rare thing to like recognize in the moment that this is going to be pivotal forever. Yeah. And we joked a lot, but it was also quite honest that when we watched the Academy Awards that Parasite won so much for, it was like our Super Bowl. Like mm -hmm. we were like jumping off the couch and like screaming and cheering when it was winning things because we didn't think it was going to happen because of racism. Um, and we were so, so, so excited when it did. Um, I just want to touch on that and elaborate a little bit. Like, I just want to highlight at those Oscars, Parasite won best picture, best original screenplay, best international feature and best director. And it won the Palme d'Or. And not it, at the Oscars. And it was the first non-English <laughs> film in Oscars history to win best picture. And it will never... Much like how Everything Everywhere winning Best Picture and all of the awards that it won at the Oscars still hasn't sunk in for me, I still can't believe that this film did as well as it did at the Hollywood Sucking Its Own Dick Festival and they gave it to an international film and so many awards to an international film. I think that's so awesome and it's just like such a bright spot of not patting itself on the back but recognizing really a really really impactful and really important movie that came out when it did so let's talk about then why the film is impactful we haven't really talked about the movie at all <laughs> just the experience of watching the movie and the importance of the movie the thing about this movie that got me the first time i watched it and why it is so 
incredible to watch without knowing anything about it and why I think it's one of my favorite films to like show someone who hasn't seen it, especially if they don't really know what's going to happen in it. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll be one of those films forever that in like 10 or 15 years, a person might be like, you have never seen Parasite and you don't know what it's about. Oh my God, I got to show you that. Yeah. Right. One of the reasons that it's so effective to me is that it moves from one genre to another so smoothly and so deftly and without you even realizing it to get you to think about your emotional reaction to what's happening on screen. Mm-hmm. Like Bong Joon-ho is a goddamn master. Yeah. And the more I was reading about this, the more it's like everything was purposeful. Mm-hmm. Like he, he knew what he was doing. He storyboards it. The scripting is like very precise. Like none of this is by accident. Yeah. And you can be going from like, like it's a really funny movie. Yeah. It's also a really, like it's an artistic visual delight. Like you can look at any still from it and be like feasting on the visuals as your eye roams over so much of this like wide image. But then the next second you're horrified or you're disturbed or you feel hollowed. Yeah. And those are happening like they're colliding with each other. Like you're laughing and then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit. And I think that that like I would I would relate this to like being on a roller coaster. Yeah. And a well-designed roller coaster. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really, yeah, I really like <coughs> how you phrased all of that. Yeah, Bong Joon Ho, especially post seeing Parasite, we started delving deeper into his work that he's done, and you see just how masterful he is in his work and how considerate he is of every element that goes into his films. And this is such a display of how on lock he is when it comes to pacing. When it comes to thrills, suspense, even horror at some points. But yeah, also humor. Like this has both one of the funniest sequences in film that has to do with a peach. And I think it's so funny. But also it has one sequence that will haunt my dreams forever. And it's one of the most horrifying things. And every time it happens, I still, even now thinking about it, I have chills going up and down my spine. And one thing I'll never forget, especially on the first viewing of it, there's whenever there's a tone shift, you feel it and you feel it in your body. And there's one point in the movie where you're thrown into this tone shift and there's this moment that happens where I remember the audience was laughing because it just was like, oh, this is ridiculous. What was happening here? And then gasping out of nowhere. And we're all just like kind of kind of stunned. And I've never felt a collective feeling in a movie theater like that before where everybody's so locked in and we're all riding this kind of one emotion and then we're stopped in our tracks. That is some powerful filmmaking, if there ever was any. Yeah, I read a, a review for this night. I didn't write down who said it and I won't be quoting it. This is a like paraphrase. Or somebody said like the film always is moving, like it keeps moving and moving and it doesn't stop for exposition. It's just building on itself as it continues to move forward. Mm. 
And I think the pacing of that movement varies. Like it's like a well-constructed musical piece Mm. where you slow down and you speed up and you get louder and you get quieter and you're punctuated by a staccato sound, but you're always moving. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so true of the film. I, I just think it's incredible. I know we're going to do a deep dive on it one day. There's so much I want to say about it, but I do think if someone is listening to this and has never seen parasite and doesn't know anything about it, they really should just go watch it right now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's on Netflix. Not yeah. that Netflix is cool, but it's accessible. Um, I really like, I just want to say, I really like what you said about being musical. I've never thought of it that way, but it does move that way. It feels very musical. And I think that goes back to what you said too, about everything feeling intentional. Well, and there's a degree of loving this film even more that happened once like the, award season started and we got to see Bong Joon-ho talking about the film where it became clear that like it, the film really matters to him and the entire experience. Like I was reading about how he works with a particular Korean translator to ensure a high quality English subtitling of his film. Mm. And I don't think that always happens. I think sometimes it just gets farmed out and the initial director doesn't even have anything to do with ensuring the translation is successful. And so, you know, in some scenes like this wouldn't be a spoiler but there's a scene with reference to a university and in the english translation it's oxford but in the korean translation it's a korean school Mm. but the in talking with the translator bong joon ho and and the translator's name is darcy paquette talked about how like an english audience isn't going to understand the prestige of that korean school so let's call it oxford and there's a scene with um ramen and udon put together and they call it ramdon that's actually not what it's called in the korean film but it's something that like most english speaking audiences wouldn't have the understanding of and so they made it ramdon like ramdon so that we would understand it's like oh two kind of like easy dishes mashed together Mm. and so he's doing this really intentional stuff to make sure that we understand the nuances of the film even if he has to slightly translate it differently because the the thematics and the meaning matter more than the literal translation of the word. I so love the that amount of thought and care put into something that just speaks to how proud he is of this piece of work. And to what you're talking about too, I really like, you know, when we start deep diving into what certain things mean, there's certain cultural things that have so much significance in such what we as a Western audience can see as such small actions and it's just kind of, it could even be seen as silly in some cases, but it's actually a really, it has a really big cultural meaning in Korea. Something as simple as the way that you react to the way something smells Mm. or something like that. But learning about that adds a whole nother level of depth to the film and the actions of the characters within the film. So highly recommend going to watch Parasite, but then also doing a bit of a deep dive yourself, just kind of looking into what some of these things mean. And I I do, I read a couple things that Bong Joon-ho said that I, I think add like a really nice context um, to somebody who hasn't seen the film yet without spoiling anything. One of the things is he describes the film as a domestic Gothic And I think that's perfect. Like, I think that speaks to why I love the film so much because I have always been drawn to like a gothic horror where like the horror, 
it's a not a horror horror movie, right? Mm-hmm. Like my brother won't believe me that this isn't a horror movie because <laughs> I Has he not I, seen it yet? No, because he doesn't believe me. My brother, for the person listening who doesn't know this, hates horror movies. He's gonna be 30 this in 2024 and he hates horror movies. And that's cool. That's okay. Um, but he also doesn't trust me because when we were younger, I was watching Misery with him and there was a character he really liked and and he you know, misery is kind of on that edge between horror and thriller and he can do a thriller. Um, he was quite young. Like I want to say he was like eight or nine (laughs) and he really liked this character and he said he didn't want to watch the movie anymore if the character was going to die. And I was like, well, he doesn't die because I'm like, I don't want to shut the movie off. You dummy. Like, come on. Yeah. Like we're watching the movie. So he was like, you swear it. And I'm like, I swear the character doesn't die. And, And the character does die. And I did know that. And when they did, he was like, livid at me and I mean fair I violated his consent and his trust um and he's just never trusted me again 20 years later he still doesn't trust me so when I say Parasite's not a horror movie he doesn't believe me and it isn't a horror movie but it is horrifying and it has some of the things about horror movies that I love so much and I think you know this is more like a Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House where there isn't any like explicit horror, but it's playing in the realm of, of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that description of the movie. I think that's spot on. He knows Bong Joon-ho knows he understands his films like inside and out. Well, and what I really like is that a line that's repeated throughout the film a few times is it's so metaphorical. And while it, it is kind of played in the context of kind of taking the piss out of it, it's also very relevant to this film because it is so metaphorical. There's so much metaphor tied up in all the aspects of this film. You can, and it's so beautifully crafted that you can take it at surface level, but my God, is it so fun to dig deeper and look into those metaphors and what certain things mean. And this is one of those movies, which is a perfect film to study and a lot of grade 12 classes in Alberta are teaching it and I won't do it because I love it too much. <laughs> it's one of those I won't teach it because I love it. Um, I do show a scene from it. I show the like orchestral peach scene mm-hmm. um, just as a like intro to film study with my grade 12s. But I won't. And and it, it does convince some of them to go home and watch it. And then they always come back the next day and are like, holy shit. <laughs> um, but I just I. I I love it too much to have students tell me it's dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ever teach it unless I have a perfect class. Um, I want to share this, this longer thing that Bong Joon-ho has said about the film. So in reading more and more about this, I already wasn't just so enamored by him, both as like a human being and as a master of his craft, but he just has such a command of what he's doing both thematically and cinematically. He storyboards his whole film. So he like, he knows visually what he wants to do, but he also has such a clear understanding of what he wants it to mean and what he wants it to say. And so here's a statement, a translated obviously statement that he made about the film. So quote, for people of different circumstances to live together in the same space is not easy. It is increasingly the case in the sad world that humane relationships based on coexistence or symbiosis cannot hold and one group is pushed into a parasitic relationship with another. In the midst of such a world, who can point their finger at a struggling family locked in a fight for survival and call them parasites? It's not that they were parasites from the start. They are our neighbors, 
friends, and colleagues who have merely been pushed to the edge of a precipice. As a depiction of ordinary people who fall into an unavoidable commotion, this film is a comedy without clowns, a tragedy without villains, all leading to a violent tangle and a headlong plunge down the stairs. You were all invited to this unstoppably fierce tragedy comedy. Oh, that's so nice. Like he knows exactly. Like I love that a comedy without clowns, a tragedy without villains. Like that's so beautifully put. And and to call it a, a a trudge comedy, like I think it's so true. Like somehow this week, even in the film, I think we liked the least. Every movie we watched this week has an incredibly powerful ending that elevates the film. Yeah. Um. And thought about that. It's true. And I mean, I think that we. We watch lots of films with good endings, but these are some of the best endings I've ever seen in film. Mm-hmm. The ending of Parasite, the first time I saw it, it won't ever leave me. Because when you don't know what's coming, it's taking you through quite a lot of series of emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a bit of a litmus test, to use language I used last week, depending on what people come away from the ending thinking. Because I had some folks in my life, especially some of the younger folks in my life, take something different from the ending, which Bong Joon-ho has said is not like he, he's not a David Lynch. He'll tell you what his films mean. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite the ending. Yeah. I also just want to tell you two funny things. Yeah. So one is like they, they built the sets for both the houses um, and they needed to furnish the park house expensively. Mm-hmm. And so there's a a trash can does play a pivotal role in the movie. Mm-hmm. The trash can was a two thousand three hundred dollar trash can. Shut the fuck up, Jesus! <laughs> He's this. This is a quote from Bong Joon Ho about that trash can. What the fuck? <laughs> what kind of idiot would buy a trash can that's going to smell anyway? <laughs> <laughs> that's really good though, because that ties into an argument that I have later in the episode. Okay. Uh, and the last thing I'm going to say, which I, I just, I love this. I love this from a like, just story of an artist point of view. So Parasite won a ton of awards. Parasite is considered one of the best films ever made. I think it's one of the newest films to break the letterbox top 250 and stay at the top of it. Yeah. It's in like the top 10. Yeah. To not like lots of things will get on there, but then end up filtering their way closer to like the two hundreds or disappear altogether. Mm-hmm. It's been in that top 10 pretty much since it came out and it was number one for quite a while. Um, so it was edited by Jinmo Yang. He edited the whole film in final cut pro seven, which at the time was no longer supported. It wasn't like that's a version of final cut that hasn't, you can't get in that version since 2011. And he did it on a computer that hadn't had a software update since 2014. And he got an Oscar nomination for it. Oh, he didn't win. And, and I guess that Bong Joon-ho was pretty disappointed that like some of uh, the, I think the cinematography and the editing like that. He was very happy that that stuff was recognized, but disappointed that it didn't win. Um, especially because he said like, there's so many Korean people doing really great work and we don't, we don't know the names of these folks making international films aside from the directors, as well as we do in um, Western films. But I love that so much that he's on this like old ass computer with this expired software and he edits one of the best edited movies ever made. That's so brilliant. This movie's amazing. I love it so much. Go watch it. 
please go watch it if you've never seen it. Let us know what you think. I think it's important. Like, I think what it's saying is important. And I think 2019 was the perfect time for it. I think if it came out now, we might all be a little bit too sad for it. And like in terms of awards, what a redemption from the year before with fucking like Green Book winning. Yeah, enough of that. Yeah. Anyway, Um, it's incredible. I love it so much. I'm with you. Go watch it and then watch it again. And if you've never seen it and you watch it after listening to this, please tell us on on Instagram. Yeah. Baddad.raddad. We want to know. How does Parasite make you feel? Awe. Just awe. How does it make you feel? It always makes me feel a necessary but incredibly painful connection with the themes of the masterpiece Mm -hmm. that it is. Yeah. Really well put. Okay, so it was my mystery movie pick, and I, like I mentioned off the top, I just wanted to watch something good, but I wanted to watch something we had never seen before. So I picked the 1957 crime slash drama 12 Angry Men. It's directed by Sidney Lumet, and it was written by Reginald Rose, who wrote both the teleplay 12 Angry Men and the screenplay for this film. So our main players... Martin Balsam as Juror 1, John Fiedler as Juror 2, Lee J. Cobb as Juror 3, E.G. Marshall as Juror 4, Jack Klugman as Juror 5, Edward Binns, Juror 6, Jack Warden, Juror 7, Henry Fonda, Juror 8, Joseph Sweeney as Juror 9, my favorite juror, Ed Bagley, Juror 10, George Voskovich, Juror 11, and Robert Weber as Juror 12. And those are our 12 men who are a little bit testy. Synopsis. The jury in a New York City murder trial is frustrated by a single member whose skeptical caution forces them to more carefully consider the evidence before jumping to a hasty verdict. I wanted to watch something with a high chance of being good. This is very highly rated on Letterboxd. And it was leaving Criterion Channel in a few days from when we watched it. So I'm like, we got to jump on it. What did you think of 12 Angry Men? The first thing I have to say is you said juror so many times that it's meaningless now. It just sounds like mush. Juror. Juror number four. So I get a little grouchy, irritable when I'm going back to work. Yeah, It's hard. It's hard to... If you're not a teacher, if you're not a student, take yourself back to when you were a student. It's hard going back after the summer. We all get, and I know I had two months off, but it's hard going back. Well, we all get the Sunday scaries. Like we don't. This is like, Sunday scaries times a million. So you press play and I'm like, what is this dusty ass thing you've picked <laughs> on my first day back at work? Like what? And then I was proven to be a judgy, judgy, judgerson because I loved it. Because, yeah, I was just like, oh, my goodness, I'm so tired. You pick this dusty old movie like I'm not going to like it. And at first I was like, yeah, I I figured out it was 12 Angry Men pretty quickly. And I wasn't so sure. But then as soon as they got into the jury room, I was locked in from start to finish. Yeah. I I loved your reaction because you said so you said as much. I think I said, did you pick something dusty? (laughs) Yeah. I agree with you. This was amazing. 
Um, it was unreal. I shared that I watched it in my movies and TV group chat at work. Uh, the president of my company was like, this is in my top five favorite films. I love it so much. And something that just sticks out for me and that I'll say right off the, right off the top is when there's so many blockbusters coming out now that have superheroes fighting amidst a giant CGI battle in the third act, there's something so incredible about the power of just having 12 people talking in a room that is more compelling than all of that spectacle. Yeah, it was, I was so impressed by how progressive it was, even by today's standards. And how relevant it still is I mean, in some that aspects. didn't impress me. That made me sad. You, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like you watch something from the 1950s and you watch something, you know, like, we had a lot of conversations about To Kill a Mockingbird around this time too and about like thinking about something and its relevance at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is, you know, you think 1957, it's so impressive for the time and yet there's nothing that's not still impressive now. Whereas mm-hmm. when I look at To Kill a Mockingbird, I think there's some things that are a real problem. Yeah. And there's nothing to me, and maybe I'm missing something, I didn't see anything that was a problem. Of course, people say shitty, offensive, prejudiced things, but they're called out on it. Yeah. And 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 not even called out is not the right word. It becomes a point of discussion. It becomes a point of, well, why why do you think that? Or what bearing does that have on this case? Or so on and so forth. And as a testament to to the fact that as humans, we're not always going to agree, even when, you know, 12 white men, because at the time people of color and women can't be on juries, especially not women of color. These men should be coming from a similar background. And even so, they have all of these different opinions and all of these different thoughts. And it honestly feels like such a relevant microcosm to even now where you look at the kind of discord and division that we have that is just made so spectacle on social media especially twitter Mm. and what we need is dialogue what we need is conversation what we need is speaking across difference speaking across the things that we don't actually agree on respectfully and humanely and i think this film is such a testament to that and i Mm. read a book earlier in the summer called how to do nothing and one of the things that it talked about is that social media spaces, but especially spaces like Twitter where your word count is limited to a certain amount of things, we can't have that kind of dialogue. It's forcing us into these like quippy, short little mm. things. And then the other thing that the book talked about is we're geopolitically separated from each other because it's not all of us in a room in a community that we know we belong in and might bump into each other on the street later or that we know we're all going to be voting in the same thing or that we know that you're my kid's teacher or you're the grocer or whatever. It's, well, you're somewhere in Alberta. Mm. And that disconnection from like physical space and what like brings us together even when we feel differently from each other is created through social media in a way that diminishes dialogue. Oh, man. And this film shows what happens when you put those people into the same space and make them talk. Yeah. That's, I, I've never thought of that before. 
Um, that's not my idea. That's Jenny Odell's idea from How to Do Nothing. Well, but. Jenny, thank you. Because, <laughs> yeah, I never thought it like, how can you have long, thoughtful, meaningful conversations, especially in a, in a medium like Twitter slash X, where you're limited by your character counts and you're meant to put out something thoughtful, but you're so limited by character counts. And I even think of it with like my classroom is a different version of you know people forced into a space together who might not want to be in a space together having to talk about things together and if my classroom became twitter that would mean that anybody walking down the hallway could pop their head in and have an opinion for 2 seconds and walk away and how can you have a sustained developed nuanced conversation that might move between anger and sadness and disagreement and agreement and minds changing and this and that if people are popping in and leaving every two seconds. Well, I, I don't know. This might sound hot takey, but I feel like all of us as humans want to be understood and we seek out the means to be understood. And I feel like that could be the recipe for why so many conversations online devolve into in in a lot of cases just vitriolic conversations because it's just one thing begets another thing begets another thing and the understanding of what maybe the original post or the original thing being said is totally gone or lost or doesn't have the opportunity to well and we're also not in real time so you might be getting mad at somebody about something and they don't see it for a couple hours so to go back to the film all of that is happening in one space Right. Like people are getting angry. They are saying awful things. They are saying thoughtful things. They are saying nothing. They are refusing to look each other in the eyes. They're thinking of different ways to cast their votes and they're thinking about the ethics of that. But they're moving through it together because they can't just walk away. They can't just slam the computer or realize, oh, I missed that message from three hours ago or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's so moving. And I think the film in all its dustiness that I judged it for initially <laughs> even once I was starting to like it I was like ah oh, but it's not visually that interesting and then I was even wrong there yeah because I think purposefully it's pretty visually neutral at the beginning it's pretty like just like you're watching a stage mm-hmm. and then it starts to get more it's unbiased at the beginning yes and then it gets more and more specific in its use of camera angles and where like close-ups and that kind of stuff and there's even this just beautifully moving tableau moment that's probably one of my favorite things I've ever seen emotionally and visually and I just think it's I just think this film is amazing yeah I, and like I have to I have to call out Henry Fonda who plays juror eight in that you know this conversation that we're having about conversations he doesn't he doesn't put out there that he has all the answers or that he's right so many times and throughout this, he says, I don't know. But I want to talk about it. I want to have a conversation about it. Yeah. And if I don't know, we need to talk about it. And like that in itself is so simple and so powerful. And it's something I'm trying to embrace more in my professional life, but also just my day to day life of I don't need to be <laughs> I don't need to be hot takey. I don't need to have the answers and it's okay for me to to say that, to say that I don't know. I also think um, I can become very moved when I hear like the story of the people involved in making a film. 
Um, so Henry Fonda and I think a couple other people, but Henry Fonda is the one I'm going to talk about, actually took a deferred salary. So like you don't get paid unless the movie is successful mm. and the movie wasn't successful. Mm. So he didn't get paid for this movie. Nonetheless, I guess in his life, he continually talked about this as one of the top, like the best three movies he ever was involved in. Um, and he continually spoke about how he was angry at the distributor because it didn't do well at the box office, but then it got a lot of critical recognition and he felt like it should have been like re-released and re-marketed once it had gotten that critical mm. success. But what else is really beautiful is I guess the first time he watched it, he just turned to the director and said, Sydney, it's magnificent. Mm. And that is so beautiful. Yeah. I love it a lot. It's, it's something really great. So like in my, in my letterbox review, I said something essentially that conveyed the feelings that it's really nice when there's this really highly revered movie and you watch it and you just, you're like, yeah, yep. I, I get, I get it. why people love it. <laughs> uh, our buddy Devin, who was on the show previously when we did a deep dive on Silence of the Lambs, commented something that was just along the lines of that there's just something so special and so satisfying when you have that feeling, when you're just like, oh yeah, of course they fucking nailed it. That's why people love it. Like this is why it's considered one of the best movies ever made. I guess that um, it's not a very good representation of a jury because the things they do in it would actually result in a mistrial. <laughs> um, and like, I guess that that gets talked about in a lot of law courses that like this actually isn't how like they are. You're not supposed to use conjecture and all of this stuff. So I think perhaps not a good representation of a jury, but a good representation of what we talked about earlier, which is dialogue speaking in communities that don't always agree being willing to sit with the difficult things being able to sit with discord sit with uncomfortable feelings and talk through them um and then ultimately just like a really profound piece on humanity morality and justice even if it's not a very accurate representation of the legal system yeah makes for a good movie though um, also it'd be a very good um double feature with all of jury duty which also I don't think is a very accurate representation of the American legal system. No, <laughs> I don't think so. A um, couple of things I just wanted to touch on. As I mentioned before, Jura 9 I was all here for that guy. Remind me who Jura 9 is. Uh, little old man. Oh, the little old man. Yeah. I felt He's him good. so hard in this. He was just so lovely. And I, I like that you got to get some jabs in on me because Jura 12 is a self-proclaimed ad man <laughs> and i too am an ad man yeah you no longer want people to ask you when they find out you're in advertising oh is it like mad men you want them to ask you if you're like that juror in 12 angry men yeah yeah my, my job is not like mad men i mean to a, a point there is but less smoking in the office less sexism i try to do i try to do good in my field <laughs> um yeah, but he says he just gets very ad manny, and you're like, "Oh, this is you. This is what is this what you do every day?" <laughs> uh, yikes! <laughs> this was incredible. I kind of want to own it on Criterion. Oh, gosh, Criterion gets us every time, Thankfully, and it's not on a... Criterion Channel anymore, so we must buy it physically. They have so many sales. We should just do that. <laughs> I want to tell you two last things. Okay. Um, one is. I find it really fun to discover Nepo baby daddies. Oh, yeah. Where I'm like, oh, Henry Fonda. 
Jane Fonda's dad? Oh, Ed Bagley. Ed Bagley Jr.'s dad? Yeah. No relation. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I looked it up after. Those are their parents. But I'm just like, ah, the Nepo babies. Here are their daddies. Little nepotiz. Little nepotiz. Also, I have a uh, rendition of Do You Find This Interesting or Not? Oh, hell yeah. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. IMDb trivia. Quote. Juror number seven claims he made 27 grand last year selling marmalade. That's not bad. That amount would be over 2,000. Nope. Would be over $264,231 in 2022. Damn. You find that interesting? It is pretty interesting because I have a feeling he found a bear in London that he can make <laughs> his nut off of. So that is interesting. Pretty interesting. All right, then let's say 311 out of 322 people do find that interesting. <laughs> ba, ba, ba. Yeah. That's it. The other thing I really appreciated about Juror 8, Henry Fonda, is that I, as somebody at work who can be the killjoy of the room in myself, he was not afraid to be that person here. We need killjoys. We need people who are like, let's have the real conversations. And Henry Fonda, juror number eight, he's that guy. They're killjoy baby. All right. 12 Angry Men. How make you feel? It made me feel deeply moved by the humanity and the power of this classic film. Very well put. Made me feel so compellingly blown away. Nice. We went to the theater. We went. To, we were going to go to the theater for a 9.30 show on the first day I went back to work. What were we thinking? Whoops. Too tired. Um, but I did want to see this movie because I'd been hearing things about it. So we went to the next showing at Metro, which was the Tuesday at 7, a little bit earlier, a little bit more manageable. We went and saw the 2023 film Passages. It's a drama romance. It's directed by Iris Sachs, written by Sachs, Mauricio Zacharias, and Arlette Langman. It stars Franz Rogowski as Thomas Feiberg, Ben Wishaw as Martin, Adele Exochopoulos, really should have looked that up, as Agat, and Erwan Kipo Fal as Ahmad. Synopsis, a gay couple's marriage is thrown into crisis when one of them impulsively begins a passionate affair with a young woman. What do you think of Passages? I was looking forward to this because I started getting served ads for it of all places on Instagram. And I was like, interesting. I was interested because of Benny Wish. Love Benny Wish. Speaking of Bears from London. Um, also, I think that Adele XR Chopolis is a babe. Didn't love Blue is the Warmest Color, which I think is the only other thing I've seen her in. Yeah, it's nice to see her in something that isn't that. But I think she's a babe. And also just the vibe I got from the trailer for this. It just seemed like a smexy time. Yeah, I was like, if nothing else, this movie's going to be sexy. And it does deliver on that for sure. Yeah, very schmexy. What I didn't realize about this film is that the main character, Thomas, Tomas. Tomas. Tomas, was going to be so unlikable. Yeah. And not unlikable in like an American psycho way. Like Tomas is unlikable in a real way. Like we all know people like him. Yeah. It's not over the top. It's not not hyperbolic He's just an unlikable person because he's selfish mm -hmm. because he he's like focused on his own pleasure and his own like desires in a current moment over anything else. And we we all have met people like that. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated that. Like I appreciated the grounded way that it explored toxicity or like just people who like haven't figured out how to care about others. Yeah, 
the way that I kind of summed it up was that passages, it felt like a unique look at modern relationships and the pain that ensues without the core element of any relationship, which is just open, honest, clear communication. Yeah. And the effects that that has on not only yourself, but the people you're involved with. And yeah, that building frustration with Tomas throughout, I agree. I agree with you. Like I didn't expect to dislike him as much as you end up kind of disliking him in this film. He's just really frustrating. And I think, I think the film does a really good job, as you said, of showing people who allow that lack of communication to continue to exist, even when they might be somebody who would want it. Mm -hmm. And then we see people who are good at open communication. Like the character of Ahmad is really, he's Mm -hmm. not in the movie a lot, but he very much represents that person who's like, well, I'm just going to call it like it is. And we're just going to talk about it. Yeah. Um, No nonsense. No nonsense. And then we see like certain characters like growing to that realization that that's what they do want. And, I thought it was this. It's such passages was such an interesting experience because I think it's incredibly well acted. Oh yeah, like so well acted. I thought it was beautifully filmed. Like it was, it was wonderful to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was edited well. It had kind of that Francis Ha feel of like we're flitting between moments in these people's lives and mm. and we're just understanding the connections between those moments, it which I sh- really liked. It is schmexy. It's very schmexy. It's NC seventeen. I've heard. Really? Somebody told me that. And there's one scene that I'm like, that checks out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like NC-17, baby. <laughs> um, and yet I don't know that I would watch this again. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's important. Yeah. I'm really glad I've seen it. I think it's incredibly well made. And I think I get it. I think I'm good. Yeah, I I agree with you. I, I got, I, I feel like I got everything the film wanted to give me on this first watch. And I don't feel like, I need subsequent watches to get more from it. I do think I got a lot out of it. I and agree. we had some really good conversations following it. But I agree with you that I think like that was enough for me. What I did take from this is that I would really like to see Ben Wishaw and more like grounded queer dramas where he gets to play a queer character. Because I've liked him in everything I've seen. Not that it's been a lot. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he's wonderful as Paddington, of course. Mm-hmm. But I had never seen him. I didn't even know he was queer. Mm-hmm. And I getting to see him like he's he is amazing in this. Yeah. And I just wanted to like pick him up and hug him. Um, So I'd like to I'd like to get to see him in some more roles like that because he's very talented and. I just think that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, he's excellent. And I don't like it when Benny Wish is sad. No, it makes me sad. Yeah. Um, There is a moment in this. I won't say what it is. But there was a moment in here that had a, it made me feel a similar way that I felt in the film See No Evil, where somebody does or says something. And as a person, I'd just be like, that's a no go. That's not, and I would just shut it down. But the people in the movie, like, just go with it. Um, did you find, I, I don't know what you're talking about because you're not saying, but did you find that more believable within the, way that the characters had been represented that they might just go with it as opposed to in see no evil. Yeah. Speak no evil. Yeah. Speak. Yeah. Speak no evil. Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I think that the, the character work here is far superior. To yeah. This evil. is a, this is a film that is grounded by its 
clear development of its characters. Like this is a character study. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was all incredibly well done. This is a film that I think I could easily see like a person coming out of this being like five out of five. Oh yeah. And I think that it has all the makings of that. And that's just a subjective experience based on what kind of movie you like. Yeah. But it's incredibly made incredibly everything involved is incredibly good. Um, it is really sexy. Mm-hmm. If you don't like watching really sexy things, fair warning, there's some pretty graphic scenes. Um, yeah. But yeah. How did passages make you feel? Grateful for thoughtful and complex modern romance stories. How did it make I, you feel? I do love a, um, I do love a bisexual representation that's just there. Yeah. And they don't always have to be likable. This is a really unlikable bisexual. <laughs> How did it make me feel? It made me feel rightfully frustrated by the key character in this well-made film. Yeah. I have a real template for how I wrote my, how did <laughs> they make you feel this week? Okay. This is the moment in the week where I picked a mystery pick and I said to you, Elliot, I said, should we stop picking really good movies? Cause we'll have so much to say about them. And then mm-hmm. you're like, eh, pick it anyway. So I decided to revisit that magic time in 2019 when we saw all these amazing films in the theater right before theaters shut down. And we revisited a movie we've only seen that first time in the theater. Mm-hmm. But we it's and it hasn't been on streaming for a while. But we just bought a Blu-ray of it. Special edition Blu-ray. Special edition A24 Blu-ray. I picked The Lighthouse. So it's a 2019 drama fantasy horror directed by Robert Eggers, written by Robert Eggers and his brother, Max Eggers. And it really, truly only stars two people. Robert Pattinson, our Pats himself, Thomas Howard, he plays, and Willem Dafoe plays Thomas Wake. Synopsis, two lighthouse keepers try to maintain their sanity while living on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s. What did you think of The Lighthouse? I know that the lighthouse is not everyone's cup of tea, but it, hundred percent, it is certainly my cup of tea. Yeah, just even the genres, the genre of drama, fantasy, horror, I'm in. I mean, this is playing in that realm of gothic horror too, right? A little bit more into that cosmic horror of like a H.P. Lovecraft, which I'm not always into. That's fair, but I think those moments are so like symbolic and trippy and playing with what's real and what's not, as opposed to in an HP Lovecraft where it's like, and now the Kraken (laughs) and now Cthulhu. Sorry. I know people love HP Lovecraft. They love that racist fuck, but um, (laughs) HPP HPP poo poo Lovecraft. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this I think has a little bit more of, like it's like gothic and cosmic horror and then also like very contemporary horror just collided together. Yeah. I mean, it's the lighthouse is delightfully weird, beautifully shot and compellingly written. Arpats and Willem are such an unlikely but complimentary pair. Oh yeah. We were, by the time this came out, we were all in on Arpats. Like we, we weren't like eh, Edward Kellen. We were like, yes, Robert Pattinson. Um, we're Rob Sest. And <laughs> We were stoked for like these two people being in a movie together. And and to to this day, if Willem Dafoe's in something, I'm probably going to check it out. If Robert Pattinson's in something, I'm probably going to check it out. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's this is such a memorable film in that there's so many moments throughout that just stick out in my brain because it's so 
beautifully captured. And there's a line from Willem we we repeat quite often. Yeah, we quote in our house quite a lot. Around the house is a bit. And it was actually, I was kind of thinking, this was fun to revisit having since seeing it for the first time having gone to the east coast of canada oh 100 percent. i was thinking that especially when we we watched um a little like featurette it was like a 10 minute featurette on the making of it and that's when we first like heard that or at least remembered that it was filmed in nova scotia and i was like oh it checks out especially like we spent some time outside of halifax when we were in nova scotia and i was like yeah this we were we were in some foggy areas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This film just feels like Nova Scotia. And in that little piece that we watched, it was kind of nuts to learn that all of the buildings and all of the sets were built, including the lighthouse. There's a lot of connections between Parasite and the lighthouse, not in mm. what the films ultimately do, but I think in the way that both filmmakers approached making the films. So Robert Eggers, I loved this when I, I found this out that he starts his projects with like a lookbook where he's like mm. collecting images and writing and things that are inspiring him. And then he can show that to someone and they can like get a feel for what. And, and he said that in the feature at two that he starts with like what he wants the vibe to be. And I think that's so important because this movie, like you said, you can feel it. Yeah. Like you feel damp. You feel <laughs> cold. The Foghorn, oh my goodness. I, coming away from this, since seeing this in 2019, I'm a much different film watcher. And I was blown away by the sound design. Yeah. In a way that I'm sure in 2019, I appreciated it subconsciously. But I was like, holy shit, the sound designer here is a genius. Yeah. Because the Foghorn, the the screeching of the like siren... I don't know. There's just some impeccable sound design in this that is both chilling and mesmerizing. It's that while also just perpetuating this oppressive feeling throughout the oh, whole yeah. thing. And like they say as much in that little featurette we watched where it, not only does the sound design make the vibe feel oppressive, but the way they fil- they've built these sets, but they built them so small. So these rooms are crowded with the crew and they're all on top of our two leads in this small shack. So everything feels oppressive. Well, and, you know, looking at this, as I said, in the same week that we watched Parasite, where Bong Joon-ho very specifically chose that wide lens to, like, create that sense of vastness and, like, family all in one frame Hmm. and, like, disconnect even in a big space. And, like, within Parasite, there's really intentional use of, like, the imagery of lines yeah. And the imagery of division and the imagery of like staircases and levels. And he needs that wide lens to be able to show all of that, that in this big space, there's even though it's open, there's all this division. Well, in this, he's using the like box format. Yeah. You probably know the actual aspect ratio. Yeah. No, no, no. Like four, three, essentially. I don't even think it's four, three. I feel like it's literally one to one square. <laughs> but it, it feels claustrophobic, yeah. right? Like by filming it in that, it's not just a like cool thing to look at it it creates that sense of like oppression and claustrophobia that is enhanced by the black and white and and like the um oh what do they call it like not monochromatic but very specific kind of black and white that by the sets themselves and that cramped feeling there i don't know it's just it's just incredible yeah it's very weird watching that behind the scenes feature 
because it has some behind the scenes footage of the set, but it's in color. It feels like it nothing. Very, yeah. It, it feels like nothing about this film should be shown in color ever. No. <laughs> no, it's really, it's so, it's so good. It was really great to watch it with subtitles because the first time we mm-hmm. watched it, I was like, I don't think I heard, I don't think I understand a single thing Willem Dafoe said. Like Parasite, it's both really funny and really upsetting. Yeah. Like I'm laughing, but I'm also like, <laughs> like ah. <laughs> and Robert Eggerts himself, I love this quote because we really like the witch too. We're more lukewarm on the Northmen. Um, Both of which also killer vibes. Killer rega- vibes. Regardless but the Northman of- is just the least my kind of vibe. Yeah. So he said about uh, making the lighthouse Quote, after making the witch so miserable and self-serious, I thought if I was going to explore misery again, I would want to be able to laugh at it. Mm. And then he said, though, that he wanted to make sure that it wasn't too funny. And so the score is what he focused on to help keep that dark tone. Mm. Like the score is a signal that like, yes, this is funny, but not in a good way. I would say even to an extent, the sound design. Oh, for sure. I mean, he's Robert Egger said in the featurette that like there's aspects of sound design that became music and aspect of score that became sound design and Mm -hmm. that both the composer and the sound designer actually kind of, they had to work in tandem and sometimes were doing each other's jobs. Um, He didn't say it like that. He said it like there are things that the sound designer did that other people would say is composition and things the composer did that other people would say are sound design. Yeah. And that's really a highlight of this film. It's incredible. Yeah. You know, it was after watching this that you've spoken about it a couple of times now that 2019, I feel, was the start of a pretty big wave of films, of really good high caliber films that all came crashing down in 2020. And I mean, I think we definitely came roaring back in 2022. 2022, we've spoken to before as just being a very incredible year for good quality films coming out. But again, I I question if that's just us being more active in film going and film watching, but also it's hard to not want to go to more films and watch more films when there's good shit coming out. Oh yeah. So I think one begets the other. I just really love the way this film feels. I love the way that it, it's not a roller coaster. It's like a drop of doom. (laughs) Yeah. But like, not a fast drop of doom. It's like you don't even realize you're on the drop of doom until all of a sudden it starts going really, really fast. And you're like, ah! Yeah. (laughs) And like, it takes you... It's got that like Edgar Allan Poe... I like Edgar Allan Poe much better than Pee Pee Poo Poo Lovecraft. um, Feeling of unreliable... that's H-Pee Pee Poo Poo Lovecraft. Apologies. (laughs) Very sorry. I like Edgar Allan Poe much better than... HPP Poo Poo Lovecraft. Um, that feeling of like narrative unreliability mm-hmm. and also that ability to make the audience feel like they are going as mad as the characters. Yeah. I also have a couple funny things I want to share. So there's a lot of homoeroticism in this. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Eggers has said, quote, Am I saying these characters are gay? No, not saying they're not either. Forget about complexities of human sexuality, their particular inclinations. I'm more about questions than answers in this movie. He also said that it's meant to be very psychoanalytical. 
he's playing a lot on like, I mean, there's so much allusion to like Greek myth, um, but he's also playing on like Oedipal stuff. He said that he believes Robert's character just quotes want, just quote wants a daddy. <laughs> um, and he, he, this is my favorite thing ever. He said that he hopes quote that this is a movie where both young and Freud would be furiously eating their popcorn. <laughs> And I just think that's all so, so, so good. It seems like he had to fight really hard to keep some of those artistic elements in the film. One thing that I, I thought was funny, because I think one of the most quoted things Robert Eggers has said about the film is, quote, nothing good can happen when two men are trapped alone in a giant phallus. <laughs> but in uh, he actually shot this. There was a scene where there is a erect phallus that like jump cuts to the lighthouse mm. or smash cuts. Which one is it? Smash cuts. The smash cuts to the lighthouse. And the, I don't know if it was the studio or the distributor said, you got to cut that. And he ended up doing it. And he said in the end, he's really glad he did because he feels like it was too juvenile and too on the nose. Mm. But that's just, it's just something. It's really good. That is just something. There's also a scene in this that I had forgotten. Seems like a scene right out of the big Lebowski. And then I read that it is meant to be a direct homage to the oh. Big Lebowski. Oh, yeah. great. Which is, which is hilarious because yeah. it's good. I love that in this weird drama fantasy horror movie that you can still pay homage to the Big, Big Lebowski. Lebowski. <laughs> Question for you. Ah. How much would you pay for that mermaid carving that our Pats masturbates to throughout the movie? <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like you could get it at like a tchotchke store for. No, that exact one though. Oh, so context a24 put this up in one of their auctions oh. and i know how much it sold for i mean because it was like the one used in the film i'd maybe like tap out at like a couple hundred bucks <laughs> how much do you think it sold for probably like 20 grand One hundred and ten thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars yeah i mean i'm not paying that <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. For a tchotchke. Me neither, baby. <laughs> For a tchotchke that our pats rubbed his pee-pee to. Nope. No, thank you. Papa pass <laughs> Papa pass I don't know. This movie is beautiful to look at. It is such a, like, insane in the, like, the literal definition of the word. Like, this is a depiction of insanity Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson are incredible. I love watching them together. I love watching what they say about making the film after making the film. And I have a feeling we watched this the like night that I had students back in the classroom the first day. I was really tired. I think one day when I watch this not so tired, it's going to be a five out of five. I agree. I was fully prepared to go into this conversation feeling like yeah, I'm at a 4.5 out of 5 and this conversation could sway me closer to a 5 and it indeed has. Yeah, it's pretty good. I also have to, um, I have to give you some props, Elliot. Mm. I didn't know because I'm just a little dumb girl. Uh, I didn't, <laughs> so stupid. I'm so stupid. I don't know anything about technology. <laughs> I didn't know that if you have, and I, I know probably most people listening to this already know this, but if you don't know this, if you own a movie, especially if you own it on Blu-ray, and it's also streaming, you should watch the Blu-ray. Because what I didn't know until you told me this week is that streaming compresses everything so that the sound doesn't sound as good and the color and picture doesn't look as good. Yeah, it's all squishy squashed. 
and just like the sound gets really muddied and, and dulled. And so we watched Parasite. We could have watched it on Netflix and we watched it on our Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. And then I was just like, just for like an experiment, let's go watch like a scene from it on Netflix. Totally different. And I really felt, I know the lighthouse isn't streaming anywhere in Canada right now, but when we watched it, we had the sound loud and it sounded so good. And I don't think it would have if we were streaming it. And I just now understand that anytime we own something, I should pop that in instead of streaming. Though, if it's DVD versus streaming, which would you pick? I think this is this is a very tough one because DVD, I feel, will still be less compressed, but it won't have the resolution because so the sound might be better but it might look better streaming yeah and also subtitles <laughs> tend to subtitling suck. on dvds is big woo! yellow thickums yeah. italics takes weird up, takes up half the screen yeah 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 okay this was fun it was fun to watch the lighthouse can't wait to watch it again how does the lighthouse make you feel even more enraptured on this second watch that make you feel under the increasingly maddening grip of this artistic powerhouse. Ooh. Hell yeah. Legitimately. I just love this movie so much. Okay, we went back to the theater for what is one of my most anticipated movies of the year. And we saw the 2023 straight-up comedy, Bottoms. It was directed by Emma Seligman, whose previous film, Shiva Baby, we covered on the show. And it is a movie we really, really like. And it was written by Emma, but as well as one of my faves in comedy right now, Rachel Sennett. And it stars Rachel Sennett as PJ, Io Edabiri as Josie, Ruby Cruz as Hazel, Havana Rose Liu as Isabel, uh, Kaya Gerber as Brittany, Nicholas Galanzine as Jeff, and Marshawn Lynch as Mr. G. And... Here is the excellent synopsis for you. Two unpopular queer high school students start a fight club to have sex before graduation. I mean, how can you not be into that log line? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. What'd you think? The bottoms. So as with you, I was eagerly anticipating this and feeling some major FOMO as it was getting released in other places in the world and people are logging it on Letterboxd and I just want to see it so badly. And it's playing at just two theaters in Edmonton right now. And we were like, we got to go opening night, first show. Uh, I was so excited and a little nervous. Yeah. But holy hell, this is one of the funniest things I've seen recently. I thought Barbie was really funny and I laughed a lot at it. It's a different kind of humor. Yes. It's a real in-joke humor. Like it's not like you could tell there were some annoying people in the audience, I'll say. Mm -hmm. I think a movie like this is going to draw a particular kind of person, some of which grate on my nerves a little bit, even though I would love think they're lovely people, but like some of your vocal, vocal laughter can grate on me a little bit. Um, everybody was just in. Everybody was laughing. Everybody was gasping. Everybody was letting their air out in some of the like, Ooh, moments <laughs> yeah. at the same time. It's just hilarious. I feel like this is a movie for like the gay girlies. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Big time. 
Um, especially the gay girlies who didn't think Barbie hit hard enough. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I just want to call out, quickly call out a very unique, weird audience thing is that, I mean, it was mostly sold out and I was sitting next to a couple of girls that they showed up halfway through the previews, but they had this thing that they did when the Wonka trailer came on that every time Timothy Chalamet was on screen and not saying anything funny or just anytime he spoke, they would giggle and giggle quite loudly. And then that, that behavior continued into watching bottoms where every time that there was a man on screen that spoke, even if it wasn't to deliver a funny line, they giggled, which is like, have they ever seen a man before? (laughs) I mean, power to them if they haven't. This is what I'm speaking about with some of the like, I love you. I'm so happy you're enjoying this, but could we like, you know, what Ross does in Friends? Yeah. Like, we just take it down a notch. I just want to know why. Like, what? You should ask. You should have been like, what's with the giggle? And so like, hey, like, every time there's a man on screen. And then they just giggle at me. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Actually, probably. Yeah. That, uh, the Shining Twins vibes, but giggling. Yeah. yeah. Um, Emma Seligman, Io Debery, and Rachel Sennett are stars. 100%. They're gifts to this world. I think Io Edabiri takes the cake. Like, I think that mm-hmm. she shines in this, and I love her in The Bear, and I like getting to see her in something that has a totally different tone. She plays flummoxed very well in both <laughs> of those, though, <laughs> which is excellent. Yeah. She's, oh my goodness, she's so funny and sweet and and awkward in this and does it really really well rachel Sennett continues to rip oh she plays unlikable in a hilarious way so well where i'm like i love you but you're annoying yeah <laughs> um this movie relies on like hyperbole that's the word i was like you used a word that described it perfectly and that yeah that's like it's, it. it's hyperbolic and i think it's really interesting because so many teen comedies are right like Mean Girls is hyperbolic, but it doesn't act as if it knows it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe Mean Girls a little bit more, but a lot of teen comedies, they're not realistic depictions of what it's like to be a high schooler and nobody actually looks like they're a high school age. This film is playing on that history and very aware of how hyperbolic it is to like the point that there's a scene in a classroom where like someone's in a cage. Like it's not pretending that this actually is high school. Yeah. It's saying everything about this is high, what high school feels like. It's high school on steroids to yeah. represent. And interestingly enough, despite how hyperbolic it was, there were aspects of this that felt like the realest emotional depiction of high school mm. to my own extent, not to me as a teacher, but to me as a high school student. Yeah. That I was like, oof, I feel that. Yeah. Like in the genre of raunchy high school comedy, it is very self-aware and it takes a piss out of the genre. And a, a comparison that I've seen a lot of people making online is to the likes of like not another teen movie, but it's not, this isn't a spoof. Like no, this isn't it is doing, a teen comedy, yeah. but it's also aware of itself within the genre of teen comedies and aware of like what's ridiculous about teen comedies. And it's doing that. It's almost like cabin in the woods. That's a good comparison. In like, it's both making fun of the goofy aspects of teen comedy and lovingly homaging them and pushing them in new directions. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's it. And that's really, really cool. I mean, like Shiva Baby, I think Emma Seligman knows exactly what she's doing. They they have very different tones, but they definitely feel like companion pieces. I'm so excited to have somebody else in this kind of Robert Eggers, Ari Aster, Greta Gerwig, like starting to make two or three movies and having a singular voice. And even if you don't love everything they do, like, you know, it's going to be an experience. Yeah. I'm really hoping that like Charlotte Wells and Celine song and I'd love to see Michaela Cole make a movie. I'd love to see Issa Rae make a movie. Whatever Celine Scamma does next. Yeah. She's, she's been around for a while though. I'm yeah. talking about these people who are more in like the, they've now made two or three movies and, gotcha. we, and we're seeing that they have a, they didn't, this is why I'm like Celine song and Charlotte Wells. We need to see them make a second movie before we can say that they have a singular voice and a vision and, yeah. and are, and are making good on it. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so cool that Emma Seligman, I mean, Shiva Baby was, it came out during the pandemic and now it's kind of, it's getting a re-release into theaters and that's where we saw, we got to see it again and it, a lot more people get to experience it because it's, it's kind of riding on the tails of Bottoms and a lot of the marketing around it is like, see Shiva Baby before you see Bottoms. And I think, and, and and Bottoms is like, it's a Warner Brothers movie, high production value. So Barbie's Warner movie. Brothers too, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, also found out, just a tangent. So Charlie XCX played a big role in the soundtrack on this. She was also part of the soundtrack for Barbie. I found out that she is on Warner Brothers label. So Oh, that makes sense. So they can okay, just like yeah. pull Charlie in whenever. But I, you like I, her. I'm becoming a Charlie XCX fan. She just has like this punk element that I, really resonates with me. It's really good. Um, I I, uh, I listen to, there, there's a song on this. I think it's called Yes, No, Okay. And I think those are pretty much the only lyrics in the song. I bought a bunch of furniture for my office this weekend. And like while I was building my Ikea Calyx unit, I just listened to it on repeat. It just rips. Check it out. Elliot's obsessed with the bottom soundtrack. You hear it here first. <laughs> um, I really want Emma Seligman to make a horror film. Like just like a fully realized genre horror film. I think that'd be fun. Yeah. I, f- I feel like she has a lock on the tone because Shiva Baby had some of those tones. I feel like it'd be taking, and not just because there's Rachel Sennett in it, but it'd be taking something like Bodies, 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 but then leaning even harder into, into horror. horror. And I think that that would rip. You know that she's Canadian? No way. Yeah. No way. No way. Where's she from? Toronto. Tio. Toronto. But I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think that the three of them went to New York University together. Mm. Because Rachel Sennett was in the Shiva Baby short film that Emma Seligman made in college. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that Io Edabiri and Rachel Sennett were like roommates in college and I just love all of that. I think that's great. Um, Emma Seligman said that she wanted this film to be, quote, a campy queer high school comedy in the vein of Wet Hot American Summer, but more for a Gen Z queer audience. Nailed it. Yep. Yeah. And even as a stupid millennial, I was able to enjoy it. Well, this is the movie's pretty stupid. Yeah. But Ayo Adabiri in talking about the film has said that and she's speaking specifically about like where folks in when women has said that being stupid is a political act. <laughs> and I love that so much. That's and I love so that good. the film just leans into that and I'll put that on a bumper sticker. Right. That's so good. And I mean the 
it's in the trailer, but MS Seligman has been posting a lot of um there's like a TikTok trend now where people are like outside the theater with the bottoms poster and then they have the audio from this film that says, Will the ugly, untalented gays report to the principal's office? <laughs> and uh, Emma Seligman keeps sharing like uh, Emma Seligman uses she they pronouns. Um, so I'm going to say they keeps showing those on their Instagram stories. And I think they're so funny. It's so great. It's really I I just I think they I love sh- it. They shared a post on Instagram on opening day for bottoms and it just shows the process of writing it and the whiteboard with Rachel Sennett standing in front of it of like, this is the outline of our movie and them typing it out and stuff. It was just, it's really cool. And what a cool low key celebration of all of this work they put into making this thing, which is now going to be seen by so many people. And now knowing that Emma Seligman is Canadian, there's a needle drop in this. That was the most perfect needle drop scene ever. And I feel like the millennials in the audience were laughing a lot harder than the Gen Z's at this, at the particular musicality of the moment <laughs> yeah um and knowing that they're approximately our age mm-hmm. and from canada it makes so much sense oh yeah 100 um, percent, so good i can't wait to watch this movie again and again i think folks in like the queer cinema community have heard of it but i don't know that it's getting like the wide-ranging exposure that it could so if it's playing in a theater near you and you're not a homophobe i'm assuming if you are you don't listen to our show um and if you are what the fuck are you doing here (laughs) (laughs) you're not welcome (laughs) go away away. (laughs) um then i would highly recommend watching this movie it's really funny agreed i am very scared that a movie like this that is only playing in two theaters in our city could disappear very easily after only being there for a week. So go see it, go see it multiple times so that it can stick around. So more people can go see it and take your buddies. We, it was very quick, a quick, quick decision that we were taking our buddy Ashley to this because we all love silly shit. So we're like, we want to go have a laugh and a laugh. We did have, yeah. Vote with your dollar support. Those movies, like maybe hold off on seeing Barbie again, (laughs) go see bottoms while it's still in its first week. And uh, help keep this Canadian queer gem alive. I thought you were going to say support your local cinema. This is very tangenty, but we went to Chapters Indigo, which is like <laughs> the essentially Canada's like Barnes and Noble, like our big bookstore, big chain bookstore. And we were picking up some presents because it was just like the closest place where we could pick up the things we were getting. But we've been making a very concerted effort to support local bookstores when we're actually buying books and not knickknacks and our your membership was expiring or something and the the person working the till was like oh it's expiring tomorrow do you want to renew it and you just very straightforward well i said i said no i'm not going to do that and they said oh why can i ask and i said i'm trying to support local and the worker goes we're local what in what universe is a national book chain that supports anti-Palestinian stuff local? And then she's like, we're Canadian. And then I said, yeah, like Edmonton owned and operated is what I'm trying to support. Yeah. That's like going to Cineplex and like, yeah, we're, we're local. Well, exactly. Because the former owner of 
Indigo is married to the owner of Cineplex. Like, it, yeah, they've got a lock. They've got a monopoly on bookstores and movies in Canada, and it is hardly local. Yeah. And then I also was like, also the bookstore that I always go to, uh, shout out Glass Bookshop, gives a permanent 15% discount to teachers without having to pay for it. So Suck it, chapters. Not coming back <laughs> unless I need another puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, want to ask me a question? Yeah. <laughs> Bottoms make you feel. Bottoms made me feel gut-bustingly into the smart, self-aware, queer teen comedy. How about you, Elliot? Just made me feel a joyous, raunchy fun. Beautiful. Last movie of the week, and we had to pick another bang in smackaroni. Indeed, indeed. So I chose the 1982 horror mystery sci-fi film, The Thing. It was directed by John Carpenter, and the screenplay was written by Bill Lancaster, based on the story by John W. Campbell Jr. It stars Kurt Russell as McCready. Wilford Brimley as Blair, T.K. Carter as Knowles, David Clennon as Palmer, Keith David as Childs, and there's a bunch of other people too. I'm not going to go through them all. I went through all the 12 angry men. Don't need to go through all of these men. Synopsis. A research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearance of its victims. This is one of my favorite horror movies, and another one I undoubtedly watched when I was far too young to be watching this. What do you think of the thing? Do you remember the first time you showed me the thing? I don't. But I don't either. Was it the first time you'd ever seen it? Yeah, I think so. I showed you the thing? I think so. I don't remember. It's been too many years. We've seen too many movies. But this isn't another really sucks to have a dead parent. Because I think my dad loved this movie. Hmm. Seems like the kind of movie he would have loved. Oh, yeah. But it's also possible he missed it because my sister was born in 1983 and this came out in 1982. Mm. So it's also possible that he just like wasn't in a time and space to like be going to the theater and discovering new movies. Right. But I know he loved Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I know he loved The Exorcist. So I'm assuming he loved Halloween. So I'm assuming he liked John Carpenter and it seems like he would have loved the thing. Yeah. Seems like he would have loved the thing and Alien, but I have no way to confirm either of those things because he is dead. And when I ask my mom and she says that she'll be able to tell me, she says things like, I don't know, Kylie. He liked porn. So um, she'll be like, well, I would know the answer. And then she'll get mad at me and not be able to tell me <laughs> what he actually liked. So this feels like a movie that he loved that you showed me hmm. that I had never seen like Jaws. Right. But I don't know. That's what that's the narrative I have in my head. Mm. Do you like this movie? I do like this movie. I like this movie more every time I watch it. But it is not one of my favorite movies. How come? Not enough character. Right. I love the setting. Mm -hmm. I love when the things get gooey. Yes. But I don't give a shit about any of the characters. Like, I don't, I don't know who the fuck McCready is. Right. And I don't care. I really don't care. Like, I don't understand. Like, and even, like, I've seen this film at least four times, I want to say. Mm -hmm. And I still get, I'm like, who's Fuchs again? Right. Like, I was asking you while we were watching it. So, and that was a critique of, I mean, 
getting into it now. But people did not like this when it came out. I know. Like hated it. Yeah. Like it was panned by audiences and critics. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest critiques of it was that it lacked characterization. Mm -hmm. And I do think it lacks characterization. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a strike against it. But I would say that that's the thing that stops me from loving it the way I love a Jaws. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it already kind of paints itself into the corner with that because of just the number of characters that there are that it relies on its surface level characterization. Like things like, for example, the scene in the very beginning, the first time we meet McCready and he's playing chess thing i was watching this video that was kind of breaking down some things about the thing from a youtube channel called the morbid zoo and it's like in that first time we meet mccready and he loses at chess we learn that mccready doesn't like to lose we learn that with clark likes animals more than he likes humans okay can i make an observation yeah so i think the reason this doesn't hit for me the way it hits for you the way it hits for our friend Perry, who's obsessed with it. The way it hits for a lot of people that we know that like this is one of their all-time favorite movies is I think that the character work it does relies on the techniques of character work in an action movie. That's because it, it isn't an action movie, and yet it reminds me more of an action movie than of a horror film. Mm. Whereas Jaws reminds me more of a drama with horror elements. Mm. This to me doesn't seem like a drama. And then something like, like I could see somebody being like, well, there's not a lot of character work in some of your favorite movies, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. For sure there isn't. Yeah. But there's something different I'm getting out of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think it's, I'm not able to pick up on the way that action movies develop character in quite the same way that some of the other people in my life, like you are. And then I miss it. And then I'm just kind of like, Sometimes it feels like those movies just wash over me and I'm not actually ingesting any of it. It's not actually like getting into my brain. And yeah. I find myself zoning out. Like even in the thing, I find myself zoning out at times and then being like, wait, what happened? Mm. And I can't, the The best thing I can do to explain it is I feel like at times it's a very action movie. Yeah. Because I think even in the comparison you're drawing to something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is that there is a action movie way of characterizing people but there is a horror movie way of characterizing people and mm -hmm. i think the way that they do it in horror movies it, it lands better for you yes i'm not saying it is better i'm just saying that it works better for me and i think you know as i was watching this we so recently rewatched the fly like david cronenberg's the fly and i think both the thing and the fly have some of my absolute favorite body horror ever and even though I've seen the thing a number of times now, every time those like really effects driven sequences happen, I'm like, oh, yuck. I mean, you know, that's like that's what you're here for. And I get so excited by it, even like though it's been a million times that I've seen it. I haven't seen it a million times, but I've seen it a few times. And so I was thinking about like the fly versus the thing. And I'm like, the fly has character. The fly has relationships I care about. It has a narrative arc and a journey. And I'm like, at the end of the thing, I don't really care who lives or not. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the thing is relying on like almost the cowboy narrative of like, here's, and, and I feel like this makes its way into action films like Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible with like, here's our guy that we're establishing as our lead guy. 
and you're going to care about him because we made him our lead guy. And that's it. Yeah. And he's just our hero and he's our like kind of like baddie and he's our renegade and you're just going to care about him because he's cool. Yeah. And I'm like, really? His hat's cool? That I could have used more of that hat on his head. <laughs> um, well, the, the interesting thing is, is that I feel, especially in our more recent watches of it, I don't really think of it as like McCready's our hero and this is our supporting person and blah, blah, blah. I think of this more, I think of them as a group. I don't think of them as individuals. I kind of think of them as a group, as a microcosm of humanity and how humanity would deal with this situation and the things that can happen with the struggle for power and wanting to find a solution and doing the quote unquote right thing that could get them to the best outcome or what needs to happen. And I never really saw that as like, this is a event that's happening that is led by McCready. I see it more as kind of everyone's on an equal playing field within this. I feel like it also becomes a thing where in retrospect, we know Kurt Russell to be a very famous actor. So when you watch it now and you see Kurt Russell in that role, right? So that all, it's really interesting. We had a conversation with, um, a really lovely conversation with somebody, which we'll talk more about next week, probably. Yes. Um, who asked, who said, it seems like you love Jaws and I like it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I actually really love Jaws. So even right now, I feel like I'm acting like I don't like the thing all that much. I really like the thing. Yeah, yeah. Like I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. I'll watch it every year, but I don't think I love it the way you love it. And I think I struggle with it in some ways that you don't struggle with it. Yeah. Um, and I have to like learn how to watch it the way it wants to be watched, which is difficult mm. for me, but rewarding. And I want to learn that. But I want to ask you a little bit about your history with it and the first time you saw it and what what has kept you coming back to it and what you love about it. With the caveat that I don't dislike this movie. I do really, <laughs> really like it. I like I really I like really, it. really like it. I swear it. Um, yeah, like I said, I I I doubtedly watched this when I was too young. I think what I remember is that my uncle owned it. My un- classic. Yeah, my uncle owned a lot of the culty horror stuff. And I really loved going through his collection. Like I think I've spoken about he had a special edition of the original Evil Dead. That was the book of the dead bowed in human flesh and it felt really gross and has like the face on it. And I'm just like, this is so cool. I, I love this, but he owned the thing. And I think that I borrowed it from him and I watched it at home by myself as I always do. And it fucked me up, especially the first time the thing does its thing. Oh, it's good. It's so good. It's, it's also, really good. It's also really upsetting. And it's so really visceral. upsetting. Yes. It's so good. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. Like you think you've seen it all. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, just kidding. There's more. And it's wet and it's nasty and it's bones over skin and it's stretched tight and it's it's and the, so good. And there's something that's so incredible about the craft of it that like even watching it now on a Blu-ray in high resolution, that it still looks so good. Uh, the only part in it that I don't think looks good is there's one part where somebody's head is being chomped and you can clearly tell it's just clothes like stuffed with hay or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Only part. Yeah. The rest of it, I'm like, this is better than any CGI nonsense we're getting now. It is so gross. And I have to I have to tell you, this has one of the things that bother me the most, like, like that like viscerally really upset me. Hmm. 
like wormy things like oh like yeah. like wormy like even in jumanji with the flowers oh yeah like that kind of thing really bothers me like mm. at a deep visceral level that i can't explain and when the things are coming out and like blah, 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 i really <laughs> hate it but i also love it because it's tapping into something that's so uniquely upsetting to me yeah yeah you don't like wor- wormy ropies Shockingly, the spiders, like the spidery esque aspects of it, don't bother me as much. I think because they're almost more like scorpion than insectoid in like the texture of the legs. But I, you know, I think that that's so brilliant about this because in this thing's attempt to look like one of us, a perfect replica of a human or an animal, in its attempt to do that, it can embody some of our greatest fears. So it's like Pennywise. Yeah. But really gross. Um, what What did you love about this as a little kid who was too young to be watching it? You know, it's like really, it's really interesting because like it is very slow Bernie. Mm-hmm. And despite having action movie characterization, it's not very action movie, movie, but I like the ooey gooey of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the suspense of it. I like the mystery of it. And the way that that's handled, I think, is really, really good. I the, I think the build of the film really works for me. That feeling of, like, mistrust and paranoia. And yeah. I agree that works really well for me, too. And I think it really works. I don't, I don't want to talk about this a lot. But I think it's even more relevant in COVID times. Yeah. Yep. That's in a, a really sad way. Yeah. And, like, the ending is jaw-dropping. It's a yeah, our it's week an amazing of like ending. amazing endings. The ending is so good, and there's so many like essays and breakdowns of what the ending means. And I don't, I don't take it to mean one thing. I like that it can be open ended, but and that's what makes it so brilliant. I um, I just want to circle back to so that that video I was watching from the Morbid Zoo. It was comparing this version of the thing to the the thing that came out in think in 2011. Have we seen that? I've seen like kind of the main parts of it that happen. Um, but it's a prequel. It's not a remake. Are they the Norwegian team? Yeah. But they're not Norwegian. They're not, they're not Norwegian. They're like the team that was at that camp and the Norwegians come across that camp. Okay. But anyway, the, in this piece, they kind of talk about the creature effects in that people people use so use the thing as the centerpiece of their argument for practical versus CGI effects. And like while I agree, I do like when there are there is practicality, I think that CGI there is a place for CGI as well. But what's so often wrapped up in that argument is real versus not real. And they make this argument of like that that's not really valid because there's so many things in this film that aren't real. Yeah, I read that there was there's a lot of green screening. Yeah. But and like even just like the scene you said when they like they chomp it chomps a person's head, like that's not CGI, but that's not real. Mm-hmm. Like so CGI doesn't necessarily equate to fake. Mm, that's yeah it's a false equivalency that we're making yeah in fact both aren't real it's just different ways to make something not real appear real yeah um and it was making it through the lens of the two things because the new the more recent one 
started as being practical, but due to budgets and st- and they made all the stuff, but due to budget, they're just like, we're just going to make it CGI. So like a lot of that is less effective because it's not super strong CGI, well, it's- but it doesn't necessarily... M- I think that focus on re- real versus not real coming into the conversation kind of refocuses that a little bit. I think the thing for me is, and you've talked about this when we watch stop motion films, it's the tangibility of it. Yeah. It's like the difference between Gizmo and Grogu as practical, mm-hmm. as tangible versus, and that means then if Grogu's tangible, he's just going to get kind of tossed up in the air and, <laughs> That's not going to look as perhaps fancy as what you might have been able to do with CGI. There's something about like, I feel like I could reach into the screen and grab him. That feels just as true with um, the practical effects in like a horror film where I'm like those slithery, wormy things feel like they could come out of the screen and wrap around me. Mm -hmm. And maybe real or not real isn't the conversation. But for me, it's the tangibility that keeps me coming back to a practical effect. Yeah, I think a masterclass in in practical and CGI both being implemented so successfully is Jurassic Park. Yeah, what's up? Where there's this level of practicality that Steven Spielberg wanted to have so that when we do cut to see fully CGI sequences, it works better because you've grounded it with practicality. I don't know. It's, it's an ongoing conversation I'm really interested in and... It really intrigues me, especially around this film, which is just lauded for its use of practical And I mean, for good reason. Like, I love those scenes. Yeah. Like, so much. And they make me feel icky. And they make me feel, like, excited. It's like that, like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, you're just kind of, like, stoked and upset at the same time. Um, I would like to say that I feel a little sad that two films that I feel like really belong being seen on a minus 40 night when you're snowed in, we keep watching. Not on those nights, and that's The Thing and The Shining. Mm. I feel like that's the time to watch them and like really feel them. Mm -hmm. So in our inevitable Edmontonian snowed in winter, I like to make that a priority. The last thing I'll say. The ominous score, the main piece in this. Love it. Do you know that I think it won a Razzie? Did those exist then? But like, if not a Razzie, a Razzie equivalent? It was a Razzie. So it it was nominated for a Razzie for worst score. But then Quentin Tarantino repurposed the score for The Hateful Eight and it won an Oscar. Isn't that fucked? Like, the way that, I mean, it's both fascinating that like, we can reevaluate something or put it in a new context. But I mean, I think it is a really effective score in this film. Like that score play, like the final scene is phenomenal. I always need you to talk me through the way that people have thought about it, but I do feel my own ways about it. Like I like the scene and then I'm like, Oh wait, what's the whole like thing about why people love it. Mm -hmm. And that score that like ominous kind of like thrumming score that's playing over the credits is so unsettling yeah like it feels like it's doing the work of what a like potential like overly expository scene might do yeah it gives me 
it gives me the same feeling that I'm left with in a lot of like the end of Twin Peaks, the return. Yeah, totally agree. Where you're just like, oh, I don't feel don't feel good. Yeah. Cool. Cool thing about this movie. Hmm. I guess this was one of the first movies that had like a really good like stereo mix. Mm. And so this was a film that a lot of people would put on when they got their like new sound systems to like <laughs> see how good it sounded. And I love that. And I thought you would love that. I do. Oh, my God. When we put together our like sound bar and like bass speaker, you put on The Dark Knight because you're like, you got to pick a movie that's going to. And we didn't watch the whole movie, but just to like watch a scene and like check out how our sound system sounds. That's so funny. I remember doing that. That that just like shoots me right back to when DVD players first became a thing. Became a thing, and for Christmas, Santa got us a DVD player and a sound system. And I think that the first thing that we put in was Armageddon, and we just fast forwarded to like uh, an action sequence in that, and just cranked it. Another thing my family used to do, and it was just an us family thing, and I did it with friends a few times, but I grew up with a big sound system in our main TV watching room. And if you remember the THS, THX logo, it'd be like that. Mm-hmm. My family would crank it to max. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. And it would just be like, and it would be a scramble for the remote. Be like, oh, 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 grab it, grab it, turn it up. Like, that would be a thing my family always did whenever that logo came up. And I did it a few times with friends. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Why is this so Why loud? are you like bursting my eardrums here? But uh, that that's what that reminded me of. I don't know. It's a, such a, such an interesting story that this wasn't liked or respected at the time and now is considered like one of the most influential films not just because of the effects but for so many reasons and it's so many people's favorite film of all time or at least in their top five or one of their favorite horror films roger ebert at the time called it a barf bag movie in a negative way and i'm like yeah it's a barf bag movie in a good way yeah (laughs) barf bag movie um what do they say on smosh barf bag movie (laughs) non-derogatory yeah 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 um i love that about it and I'm excited to keep watching it. I really want to watch it on a cold winter night. So I feel like that's when I'm going to enjoy it the most. Turn off the heat so we see our breath. Nah. <laughs> nope. We'll just watch it and enjoy it. Maybe like they do Jaws on the Water. They do thing. They do. Outside. They do. No, they what? do. There's um uh, a station, like a, like a science-y station in like the North Pole. Like I'm getting all the details wrong, but something like that. And to signal the start of winter, they always watch this movie together. Outside? No, I don't think it's outside, but it's like a a ritualistic thing. That's cool. Uh, yeah, I, th- this is a film that is used in that context, and I like that. I think that's fun and horrifying. <laughs> Let's make sure we don't all kill each other. <laughs> <laughs> right, guys? <laughs> right, guys? Let's lock ourselves in. <laughs> I don't know. It's good. It's good. It's gooey. It's wet. It's maybe not made for my exact brain. But I really enjoy the challenge of learning how to get what it's offering to me. And then I just love all of the effects sequences. Yeah. Yeah. How did it make you feel? Made me feel delighted by the effects and a dread at the claustrophobic nightmare. Nice. How about you? Still as captivated as the first time I saw it. Let's talk about dads. Dads of the week. Ba 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 ba. Who's your bad dad nominee? Tomas. Ooh, yeah. Selfish. 
impulsive, completely lacking in any ability to communicate, even when given the opportunity to do so. Yep. I consider Tom- Tomas, but I actually leaned towards Mr. Park from Parasite. I get this too. I get this too. Um, and like he might be a good father, but he's, ah! a, but he's a bad dad. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, the way that he navigates the world and sees people in it is worrying to me. His privilege and selfishness gets in the way of his humanity. And it's his world. We're all just lucky to live with him. And let's get fucking real. A $2,000 trash can is just the smallest example of what a dingbat he is. Yeah, I'm into it. I like when you say he's a bad father, but a, or he's a good father, but a bad dad. Because I think... He provides for his family monetarily. He keeps them safe and sheltered. And there's a couple of really sweet moments with him and his son. Mm -hmm. But he also seems to just be performing a role. Yeah. And what he's ultimately teaching his kids about navigating the world is not great. So I'm into it. Hell yeah. Hey, Mr. Park. Don't Don't be our dad. My rat dad is Juror 8. From 12 Angry Men. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mentioned it when we were chatting about it, but he's not afraid to be the killjoy voice of reason in a room of 11 salty fellows. So to push and his like his willingness to push for critical thinking without being aggressive or forceful about it and being open and honest about where he's coming from and what he wants the conversation in this room to be like and then he, and then in turn his willingness to listen and to gain understanding from his fellow jurors is also commendable he's my guy i get it i do get it but i picked someone else who'd you pick i picked hazel from bottoms <laughs> oh man what a matchup <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay hey this was tricky because there was a lot there was a lot of bad dads and rad dads this week well and, that's what happens when you watch good shit and and ones that i'm like i'm excited about like yeah. I'm, I'm sad that somebody then on a different week would have gotten the the role is not going to get it because they're up against tougher competition that's a really good point like it makes me we've run into this before where we've had weeks of bangers where there i'm sad that Somebody from a movie I really, really love is never going to have a dad graphic, potentially. (laughs) (laughs) For those 10 people that always like our dad graphics. we love (laughs) you. We love you. Okay, so I picked Hazel because Hazel is all about building community and about like what can we do to grow as people and takes on like a leadership role in that, but in a like quiet way. Mm. Um, Also like just organized, which is great and communicative, which is great. And ultimately, like Hazel serves this role of like bringing people together to figure out what they need and who they are and what they're capable of. And to also say, and let's show other people who we are and what we're capable of. And like, she's not perfect at it. She is, for all intents and purposes in the film, a teenager. Yeah. That is still very much navigating the path to adulthood. But I feel like all of the makings of like a really strong rad dad are there and i think for the hand that she's dealt in the film she's real she's the only teenager that i like through most of the film Mm -hmm. not through all of the film but through most of the film hazel's the consistent like 
voice of reason, voice of humanity, voice of community. And has like a certain naivety because she sees the good in people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also understand that like objectively speaking, juror number eight makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I lean juror number eight <laughs> of the two. I love Hazel. I think, and I think what you said about Hazel is very, very good. And totally checks out for rad dad material. I'm going to leave it up to you. Fine. Give me juror number eight. And he sweeps the week. <laughs> juror number eight. Be our, be our dad. dad. Okay. Quick rad wreck before we're out of here. Story time, baby. Story time, baby. Um, I like reading out loud. I'm an English teacher. You're very good at it. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, one of the things that makes me sometimes endlessly sad about reading is that unlike a film, and we've talked about this a lot, where when you watch a movie or a TV show, you can have both a communal and an individual experience at the same time. That's really hard to accomplish with a book. Yeah. Because it, and that is a beautiful thing about books is that you can kind of escape into them yourself. But sometimes I just really want you to experience a particular story at a particular time with me. And so I asked you if it would be all right if I read you the story on the rainy river from one of my favorite books, which I only read this summer, but it's one of my favorite books of all time now called the things they carried by Tim O'Brien. And I'm about to teach on the rainy river to my grade 12s. And I just want you to know it because I was rereading it up in Ashley's art room at school during my prep and crying as I highlighted things on it and just got so excited that I'm going to get to teach this really powerful thing that I think is such a beautiful work of art and so complex and so human and so amazing to my students and hope that they are with me on it. Um, and I wanted you to experience it too. So I, so we had a little story time. We had a candle going and it was late <laughs> at night and the cat on my lap and I read your story. And I think that sometimes we just need to have story time together. Yeah. And I, yeah, I really, I really like what you said. Like it can be just like this really sad thing of, unless you're yeah sharing like an audio book and listening to it at the same time that, Store, reading a book is such a solitary thing just meant for you so I I like when you read to me I like to read to you great red rack read to read each other. a story to somebody or have somebody read a story to you make a really nice story time get candles get your jammies nice blanket hot cocoa yeah, hot, hot cocoa hot cocoa you could one person could read one page and the other could read another or you could swap turns telling stories even 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 just read a kid's book or like a picture book. Harry Potter fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I read all of my immortal telly over a series <laughs> of, of time. I don't work. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> read someone a story. Have someone read a story to you. Swap reading stories to each other. That's the rad wreck. Hell yeah. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram and threads at baddad.raddad. Let us know what you think of Parasite after you go and watch it or any of the other bangers we watched this week. You can get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you'd share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. 
But that's going to do it for these story time babies this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Bye.